The following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. My message today includes words from the Old Testament prophets, Micah and Isaiah. And I think we should add Chris to that list. Where'd he go? There he is. Also, maybe Dumbledore, right? (laughs) Thank you for joining us on this gray day in the Shire. There is a Buddhist author. uh, Her name is Nicole Day Doan. She tells a story about growing up as a kid, as an only child, and how one of her closest friends was another girl named Maria. Maria had this big, warm, rambunctious family. Her house was always full of life and spirit and probably a little too much noise for comfort. And Nicole didn't have that same feeling in her house. Maria also had one particular prized possession, her bike. Maria rode her bike everywhere. Not only did Maria ride her bike everywhere, but she learned how to take care of her bike. As a little kid, she learned how to fix it up. She repainted it. She would tend to anything that her bike needed assiduously, very, very carefully, with a lot of seriousness. And Nicole said, I swear, when I saw Maria ride that bike across our little suburb in California, it glowed. It glowed. And Nicole said, so naturally, I bugged my mom for a bike. I told her I needed the fanciest, newest model. And I got it. And I got on that bike and I rode it around our little suburban California town. And it was like, meh. It didn't glow. She said, I I got kind of mad at it, right? Because clearly, in my mind, she said, this was all the bike's fault. And I rode it less and less. It started to uh, bring up feelings of disdain and resentment in me as a little kid. I didn't even want to look at it. It got tucked away in the garage. Until one day, Maria came knocking on the door in tears. Her bike had been stolen. And she said, could I borrow your bike? The next day, lo and behold, Nicole saw Maria riding her bike through the town, and it glowed. Nicole grew up to be actually a researcher on love and intimacy. You can Google her TED Talks. They're not safe for church, (laughs) FYI. But she said, you know, looking back on it, As an adult, I see what was going on for me in a way that I never could as a kid. She said, I and so many other people expect that our love will be activated, that we'll feel that loving feeling. It'll be activated by the object, the thing that we desire. But she says, in truth, love is found in the animating quality of our attention. We don't realize that. If you'd asked me as a kid, she said, I wouldn't have said, you know, an answer to what do you want most, Nicole? Oh, I would like to focus my attention clearly and consistently on one thing and give it my all. No, I would have said I wanted that bike. But when we think we desire something, 
a bike, a partner, a job, a certain kind of status, a certain gadget, even things like permanence or security in our lives. She says what we actually desire is connection. It's intimacy. The hydration, she says, of direct experience saturating ourselves. The pouring into and out of ourselves that comes with true connection face-to-face. As we close this New Year's message series that Reverend Ken and Chris Chappelle, our worship leader, and I have been preaching about being refuge, my hope is to leave us with something that we can practice that's not dependent on our situation or our circumstances. That's not dependent on what we have or what we don't. Refuge can call to mind environments, right? Beautiful, safe environments, which we all deserve. But we don't always find ourselves there. And if we can practice that kind of intimacy, that hydration of direct experience saturating ourselves, then maybe we can actually help to turn places that are not safe into refuges for ourselves and for each other. For me, I recognize that it can be hard on a gray, gross kind of day like this when I felt a little too tired when I woke up in the morning to talk about finding the energy, finding the energy to be refuge for each other, right? To be very good and kind and loving when it's not the best day. When we're at the end of a rough flu season, when we turn on the news or maybe even just turn to each other, the people we love, and we see struggle and lack and loss. Being sick this month, for pretty much the entire month of February, I'm about 48 hours past feeling sick, so knock on wood, let's hope it lasts. Um, This month while I was sick, I figured at least there'd be a silver lining, right? That I would get to lie on the couch a lot and watch a lot of my favorite TV shows. Thursday nights, I canceled a bunch of meetings here at Wellsprings because I wasn't feeling well, and I went and turned on NBC thinking, yes, finally I'll get to catch up and see the new episodes of This Is Us. But no. The Olympics. (laughs) I want my This Is Us back, Olympics. And I have to say, I don't mind watching the Olympics. I enjoy the Olympics. But when you're sick and lying on the couch and scrolling through channels, watching the Olympics is kind of like adding insult to injury, right? Here are these incredible athletes doing their thing, and I barely have the energy to walk two blocks to CVS to get more tissues. That's a serious debate I have to have in my head. It made me think of um, this tweet by Bill Murray from a couple years ago. Every Olympic event should include one average person competing for reference. I would watch every event if they did that. But yeah, there's a big distance, right? There's a big distance even between my healthy body and the Olympic bodies on screen, let alone my depleted, betraying body that wasn't letting me do any of the things I wanted to do. And I noticed as I sat on that couch that I really was starting to feel that sense of shame creep in. 
as day after day and week after week passed, that thought, I am so useless right now. I am letting everybody down. With every canceled date with a friend, with every canceled meeting, with every email, I didn't have the energy to answer. I am so useless. When our bodies break down, it can be one of the hardest circumstances to find refuge in because we don't get to escape. Our bodies are our homes. Most of us, at some point in our lives, will experience our body as an enemy, even if only for a moment, sometimes for much more than a moment. We might feel like our body is an enemy because we have an injury. We're angry at our body. We're ashamed of it for being hurt or harmed. We might experience our body as an enemy because we've been told that what we look like, whether that's our shape, our face, our hair, our skin, isn't acceptable. We might turn our body into an enemy because of the very real pain of a chronic disease that saps our energy for what we love. We might treat our body as an enemy because it doesn't have a physical ability that we all have been taught to think of as normal, that the world is set up to exclude people from if they can't do it. We might think of our body as an enemy if for none of those other reasons, just as we inevitably age. And we notice that our bodies, as the Buddhists say, are of a nature to get sick and to die. It happens to us all. And what an enemy that is. Because our lives are so precious to us. I've only been alive 34 years, 34 and a half almost. And I have made an enemy of my body for three or four of those reasons. A couple hundred thousand moments in my life. Some of us may be five for five. There are so many ways that we can find ourselves run down in our bodies, too sick, too fat, too old, too addicted, too broken. There are so many reasons we can look at our own bodies and then at everyone else and say, why doesn't mine glow like theirs? Why doesn't mine glow like that? And we want the fix, right? We want the shiny new bike. We think that getting our hands on the newest, shiniest, fixed-up body will reconnect us to ourselves and give us that sense of hydration, that sense of intimacy and connection. But Nicole's story reminds us that even if there's nothing wrong with a fixed-up bike, that's not where the glow comes from. The glow comes from our curiosity, our inquiry, our attention, our care. It comes from learning and practicing how to love something in front of us or how to love something that is us. That is how we glow. When I was maybe two weeks, two and a half weeks into my flu, 
I really started getting frustrated because one of the saddest things that I felt I had to keep myself away from when I was sick was my yoga class. I tried to go to a Thursday morning yoga class every single week, and I was hacking, coughing, and, you know, my energy was so low that I didn't think I could get halfway through. So I didn't go. And don't get me wrong, you guys. I'm not talking about, like, a power burn hot yoga class. I go to the chillest yoga classes possible, right? I go to some gentle-ass yoga, okay? <laughs> and I couldn't even drum up the energy to go. One night, I felt so sore, so sick and tired of being sick and tired that I actually got on my phone and I googled yoga for flu. <laughs> I didn't find much. There wasn't much out there. But that, that Google uh, tunnel that it took me through eventually led me to a YouTube channel by a yoga practitioner who goes by Sleepy Santosha. She herself is a young woman about my age, but she struggles with a number of different chronic and debilitating diseases. And she has created yoga videos that are designed for the practice of people who struggle with those kinds of diseases in the body. Yoga for arthritis, yoga for chronic fatigue syndrome, depression. She has videos of yoga you can do on your couch, 10-minute yoga you can do when you wake up in the morning in bed. And so I got down on the floor in my living room, and I opened up a 25-minute video for yoga for chronic fatigue syndrome. And that was what I did. And it felt amazing. I had no idea until I was five or six minutes into that video how much I needed that practice of tending to my broken body that was not as good as it usually was. My body needed it for sure. Some of those twists, it was like my lymphatic system was just like a rushing river. It was beautiful. <laughs> All that white blood cell gunk. But even more than my body, the rest of me needed to reconnect to reconnect to this body that I had turned into an enemy. Not without good reason. But me and this body, we needed each other. The word yoga in Sanskrit comes from the root word yuj. And yuj doesn't mean to own really expensive pants from Lululemon. And yuj doesn't mean to take perfect Instagram pictures with your thigh gap on display, right? That's not what yoga means. The root word yuge means to join, to unite. The practice for me was about connecting these different parts of my experience. Mind, body, breath, energy. The practice was bringing those different parts of my experience together. It's a practice of uniting these different parts of our world towards a common goal which means that we all might find some kind of practice for when the different parts of our experience have become enemies, that maybe we can help them become friends again. Enemies are a real thing. Chris talked about evil earlier. 
We don't talk much about evil or enemies often in our UU churches. We focus on love and the love that calls us to something greater, and I believe in that. But we all experience and have enemies at different points in our lives. It's hard to imagine being refuge for an enemy, whoever that is. It's hard to imagine being refuge, maybe for some of us, for someone on the other side of the political spectrum when so much feels like it's at stake right now. It's hard to imagine being refuge for those of us who have served in the military or on a police force to be refuge for the person on the other side of the literal battlefield or looking down the barrel of a gun at us. Where is being refuge in that situation? Making friends with our enemies, it's not something I can wish you all into doing or myself. It's not something that I can judge or shame myself into doing. It takes time and practice. And I think we'll only put in the time and practice when we get to that point where we accept that we need each other. Or we accept that we need our enemies too. And then we might find the energy to be refuge, to grow love for our enemies where there is nothing like love right now. No matter how many times a relationship is broken, there are always practices of reuniting that we can use with the goal of turning any enemy into a friend. Again, I've been thinking a lot recently about apologies, about the practice of apologizing and how we do it. I was thinking about this because I started to notice something very repetitive in my interactions with people and in watching people's interactions with each other. When someone says, I'm sorry to you, what do you usually say back? It's okay? Yeah, yeah. I saw people nodding. It's fine, right? It's good. No worries. What happens when we say, I accept your apology and I forgive you? People look at you funny. (laughs) They started looking at me funny because I started doing that. I decided to try an experiment because it's my habit too. When people say, oh, I'm sorry, I go, don't worry about it. It's fine. When we say that, what are we missing? What are we glossing over that we're not comfortable enough to look at? When we say that, are we missing an opportunity to give each other some different kind of gift, to practice something that we need? Yes, maybe those are small moments, but we might need it in bigger moments. When we say, I accept your apology, I forgive you, We're not saying, it's okay, you didn't do anything wrong. We're actually saying, you did do something wrong, (laughs) right? And I still need you. Maybe I still love you. My need and my love for you is greater than the brokenness that is also here. And that can be a powerful thing to receive. I got an email from someone recently who I wrote that to, probably even weirder over email, write no tone. I accept your apology and I forgive you. And he wrote back 
And he said, you know what's funny? I, I really feel a little skip in my step today. He said, the last time I was forgiven by an ordained official was 40 years ago in a confessional booth. <laughs> and he said, i would forgotten how good it feels. It does feel good. When I've been forgiven by people who matter to me, who love me, it does feel good. Maybe part of being refuge for each other is not pretending the brokenness in our world and in each other doesn't exist. Or that we can make it go away and disappear. Maybe part of being refuge for each other is in acknowledging the broken places and naming them. Just like Dumbledore said. And experimenting with new practices to love them and invite them back into unity. In the books in the Christian Old Testament of Micah and Isaiah, there's a phrase that I've heard repeated a lot over the past two weeks since the awful massacre at Stoneman Douglas High School. That it's time to turn our swords into plowshares. There are literal protests, gatherings that people have organized where folks are bringing weapons to be melted down to be turned into something else. There are videos on the internet that people have uploaded, gun owners, hunters, collectors, videos like this one where this woman in New Hampshire is sawing through her Glock, her semi-automatic pistol. She says, I like this gun. It's fun to shoot. But I know that it's designed to kill people at a fast rate. That's the only reason for it to exist. And even if I will never do that with it, I can't bear the thought that someone I sell it to, someone I give it to, someone who steals it, could use it for that. So it's not worth the fun. The people shall beat their swords into plowshares, and nations shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, I bet some of you are like, Lee, what's a plowshare? I wondered that, too. I looked it up. It's this. The plowshare is that wide, open expanse of metal that you see turning over the earth. The plowshare is what comes in after the blade cuts into the ground. And it turns that soil over to make it fertile for planting seeds, for new growth. As we close this series, wondering how we can be refuge for each other, let's let go of the idea that refuge is unbroken, that refuge is perfect and impenetrable. Instead, let's remember that we can be broken and still be refuge for each other. In fact, it's the only way that accepting our broken places is what helps us feel love and connection and care. And that the softness and squishiness and tenderness and broken ground that follows that process, those are what brings the spring. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together.
God of our own understanding. Larger force in this world that connects our hearts to each other in a mysterious process that we cannot understand but that we feel. That we feel when we long for that connection. That we feel when we grieve people's experiences and losses, people we don't even know. Holy Presence, help us to see that these are opportunities for growth. Not in a Pollyanna way, but in a way that honors exactly how deep the cuts are and how much they hurt. And that responds to that call of love and tenderness and compassion that follows with faith that something new will be born. For these prayers I've spoken out loud and for the prayers each of these people carries on their hearts, we say amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.